This is the Freestyle Way. All right, my friends, I've been sitting here thinking about this podcast for a while now. So I'm, I'm just going to pull the trigger. I'm uncertain what's going to happen. But this, this podcast specifically is dedicated to the breakers who are on the path or interested in trying to qualify for the Olympics. For those of you who don't know, uh, the Olympics is going to be featuring, hosting, breaking for the first time. This is breakdancing. Uh, from now on, we call it breaking. That's the official name, just in case you were unaware. And it's an exciting time for breaking. And uh, something that's uh, interesting to me is watching arts, creative expressions, become sports, and then be included on one of the biggest sports platforms in the world, which is the Olympic Games, and this happening now in Paris 2024. So uh, why am I talking about this? Why uh, should anybody listen to me? Well, I'm I'm not really sure, but I'll, I'll give you a brief history of my relationship to breaking and then Uh, We'll dive into why this podcast can potentially be insightful for the breaker trying to qualify for the Olympics or interested in breaking, uh, being a part of the Olympics, or maybe uninterested. And for those who potentially could become fans of breaking, which I hope there are many of you interested in supporting and becoming followers of this amazing discipline that I love tremendously. So my history with breaking started when I was a kid and my older brother, John, loved just practicing spinning on his back. He uh, loved breaking and he loved just messing around with it. And I just remember this being part of my childhood and then seeing it in home videos and knowing that breaking, breakdancing, b-boying was a thing. And fast forwarding to, I would say, 1993, 94, and all of a sudden, me being in the world of gymnastics, competitive gymnastics, artistic gymnastics specifically, and at the facility where I trained, having people come in who were breakdancers, breakers, that wanted to learn gymnastics and apply gymnastics to breaking. And this was really um, interesting to me because I didn't understand what breaking was, but I was compelled to learn more about it. I was just intrigued. And one of the things that I was intrigued by was windmills, a movement that looks like a flare that you do in gymnastics, but is not a flare and doesn't exist in gymnastics, and then head spins, something that you would never see in gymnastics, potentially we'll see it one day, and felt to me like something that was foreign yet familiar, and that created a connection. Now, uh, I, I had a chance to go to one of the practices that they hosted outside of a train station in a town, in a town called Alicante, where I grew up in Spain, and I remember going out there, and uh, the first thing I noticed was they had music going on, And upon arrival, they were waxing the floors, these what seemed like marble floors, but just smooth 
floors. They were waxing it so that they could better spin and practice power moves. I didn't know what a power move was or what a freeze was or footwork or top rock. I didn't know. I just knew that there were these movements that I was excited to learn. And I remember the first movement that I got to practice was a backspin, and that was pretty simple to do. And the the second movement that I uh, learned or was starting to practice was a windmill. And I remember within probably three or four attempts that this windmill was extremely painful to do. I remember my hip being bruised, my shoulder blades being bruised, and me just thinking, this is completely nuts. And although I practiced a little bit, I never really got into it. I didn't take it beyond that. But I was always interested in it. Then fast forward to the year 2000 in the Olympics. All of a sudden, I see my idol, Alexei Nemov, go and do his floor routine. And on his floor routine, perform a windmill coming from a a flare uh, and then finishing in a middle split as part of his floor routine. I had never seen that before. And that was the first time I saw breaking influencing the sport that I was in and that I loved. And I saw it on the biggest platform that I knew of as an athlete, which was the Olympic platform. So that was a big eye opener. And then fast forward to 2004, I moved to the United States from uh, Spain and I get a job at a place called Acro Sports in San Francisco here in the Bay Area. And there I get to meet um, a young man by the name of Gabriel Jauchico, who in the breaking scene is known as B-Boy Wicket. And he was teaching classes there as well as I was teaching gymnastics. And we got to know each other and I realized that uh, breaking had never disappeared. It was something that continued going forward. And I thought that was very cool. And then I got to meet the members of the Renegade Rockers crew And I got to practice with them, learn from them, and simply uh, become acquainted with breaking. One day, this is now 2009 probably, uh, I get a message from B-Boy Wicket asking me if I would be interested in training, coaching the Renegade Rockers who were going to represent the United States at a big event in South Korea, in Incheon specifically, called R16. And I said, yeah, of course, I will definitely do that. So I started as a performance coach, as a physical training coach, to uh, not only practice with them, but train them to prepare them to uh, be able to perform at the highest level on game day, battle day. And then Wicket asked me if I wanted to fly out to Korea to be a part of this. And at first in my head, I was like, this is so silly. I'm going to fly all the way to Korea for a dance-off. That, that, that was my uh, way of looking at it. And I just I didn't understand what breaking really was. I had seen them practice. I had seen them dance. I thought it was cool. But in my head, I judged it as something that was a dance-off that was something silly or something that um, didn't really have more impact than something that was fun. Well, uh, little did I know (laughs) that I would arrive in uh, South Korea and all of a sudden a community of dancers, breakers specifically, from all around the world came to this event and were going to compete 
in expressing themselves through this art form that has a physical component that is the foundation of it and that comes from the uh, culture and is anchored uh, in hip-hop that allowed them to display a level of competence in their craft that not only pushed one another to the best of their abilities, but to express a level of creativity and capacity of the human form that I had never seen or knew was possible. And to witness that in person was life-changing. And I'll tell you why it was life-changing. Well, it was life-changing because when I saw that, I realized that my framework for understanding human movement as a fitness coach, as a performance coach, as somebody who had done gymnastics his whole life, was broken to the point where I had to reorganize everything that I knew to make sense of my craft as a trainer, a coach. Furthermore, that experience of me getting to witness breaking live allowed me to see the competence that each one of these artists, athletes, had in terms of advanced communication, advanced understanding of human movement, and advanced understanding of the connection to art, specifically musical art, musicality, that could be displayed in a battle format, meaning that you would have to one-up one another in a way that was nonviolent, yet had the aggression of uh, the biggest fight you've ever seen. Mind-blowing to me. And this informed everything that I would do from then on. In fact, I had a little company at the time called Naka Athletics, and I uh, created this little division within my company called Naka B-Boy Edition, which ended up uh, becoming uh, an initiative to start a channel an online digital channel that was intended to feature breaking. Uh, I, uh, with a business partner that I had at the time, developed an app that was uh, to be an educational app to teach breaking. Uh, that that didn't uh, work out for many reasons, and I'll share that on a different podcast. And then furthermore, what it ended up doing was that when I got into the world of CrossFit, which was a big launching point for my professional career, it allowed me to see CrossFit from a place of not necessarily a specific language that was composed by different elements of fitness, such as weightlifting, gymnastics, and endurance sports, but as a a specific language that was in development and needed to be injected with a great level of creativity. And the creativity for me coming from a place that was rooted in the principles and values that I had seen lived in breaking. So it became my foundation for coaching and finding some success within the CrossFit space. And although this may sound convoluted, what it ended up giving me was a lens for looking at movement that allowed me to see the evolution of a movement pattern 
and then the ability to mold that movement pattern and apply it to something unique uh, that allowed for one to have a specific outcome. And this becoming a template for a language model that I ended up teaching all around the world through my seminars called Freestyle Connection and ended up becoming the foundation for what would become my book that was published in 2014 that eventually became a New York Times bestseller. And I uh, had uh, contributions from the likes of Kid David within the breaking scene and Rocks Right, and they lended their voices and allowed me to um, speak about movement with an addition uh, that came and influenced that came from breaking and influenced by breaking. So that's my influence and connection to breaking. Now, fast forward to, I'm just giving you a quick uh, rundown on my history. Uh, fast forward to, what was it? It was 2021, December. I get a call from Wicket again. And Wicket says, hey, uh, me and my mentor Flowmaster are part of what is becoming Team USA. We just hosted alongside um, uh, B-Girl Bonita. We hosted a camp organized by Breaking for Gold USA, which is uh, becoming the national governing body um, as part of a, a division of USA Dance. And we don't really know what we're doing. We're trying to figure it out. Is there any chance you would come in and consult? So I said, sure, I'll come in and consult. I met Flowmaster Bonita, and I met with Wicked again, and we would have these weekly meetings, and we would just discuss what it meant to go to the Olympics, what it meant to uh, build a team, what it meant uh, to take a position as a coach and what roles uh, should be um, determined for a, a team to be successful. How should you communicate amongst each other? How should you structure things? Um, what should the communication look like with the athletes? What does a curriculum look like? Uh, what does the general path to the Olympics look like and how is it informed by uh, the governing bodies or the USOPC, uh, who are the key players? I mean, all of these elements we just discussed. And in addition to me consulting on these ideas, I was learning from uh, Flo, Wicket, and Bonita along the way. Eventually, we decided to uh, part ways, and we decided to part ways because things were, although chaotic, self-organizing. And what ended up becoming uh, very prevalent for me was this idea that I had 15 years ago of one day becoming uh, a sports agent slash manager. So I decided that I would continue to work with some of the athletes that I met along the way that are now, some of them uh, part of Team USA, some of them about to become part of Team USA, to become their manager. And although I won't disclose names on, on this podcast, uh, it doesn't take much to figure out who I'm working with. And the reason I'm not disclosing names is because right now we just have a handshake agreement and I have been heavily invested in their success. Now, uh, the reason I'm recording this podcast is because when I first started meeting with the athletes who are breakers specifically, who are trying to qualify for the Olympics, my first question to them was, what's the goal? And at first it was like, oh, we would like to go to the Olympics. But then in digging a little deeper, the first 
big goal was to go pro. So going pro was uh, the the vision that they had and they wanted to bring to a reality. And going pro was being able to live through and with breaking for the rest of their lives. That was the goal. And to find a way of doing that. Now, how does uh, the Olympics and going pro, becoming a professional athlete, becoming a professional breaker, how do they go hand in hand? Well, I want to try to paint a little picture for uh, that in today's podcast. And I, I've had to pull up some notes here, otherwise I would get lost. But it, it requires um, one to understand two parts. One is that if you want to go pro, you need to become a business and we're going to talk about what that means. So this is now specifically dedicated to the breakers uh, looking to go pro. You need to become a business. Specifically, you need to become a solopreneur first. A solopreneur is a business of one. And that business of one can scale into a business of many and into various forms that we can discuss in future podcasts. And the other thing that we need to become aware of is what is the Olympics? Now, uh, everybody here knows that the Olympics is one of the biggest sporting events in the world. But what's the deal with the Olympics? What's what's happening there? Well, in regards to the Olympics in um, relationship to breaking specifically, well, the Olympics is just another jam. It's just another event. It just happens to be an event that has a lot of eyeballs and a lot of money. And I'm going to give you some numbers just so you understand what kind of numbers we're talking about in terms of money. Uh, I, I picked out the top 10, or sorry, the last 10 Olympic Games, and uh, I looked at the estimated cost of putting together the Olympics, and this is in U.S. dollars, okay? So LA 1984, $1.3 billion. This is um, uh, factoring in inflation. So back in uh, 1984, it was... Uh, $550 million. That's equivalent to $1.3 billion today. Seoul, 1988, $5.5 billion. Barcelona, 1992, $22.1 billion. Atlanta, 1996, $3.9 billion. Sydney, 2000, $7.7 billion. Athens, 2004, $19.2 billion. Check this out. Beijing, 2008, $55.9 billion. It's insane. London 2012, 17.5 billion. Rio 2016, 14.4. Tokyo 2020 slash 2021, 15.4 billion dollars. That's the cost of producing the Olympics. So big money here. And now, just so you get an idea of the eyeballs that are on the Olympics, the global viewership, this is now from my notes, the global viewership according to the Nielsen rating, was 3.6 billion people watching the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. That's a lot of people. And um, just so you get an idea of what the economic impact is of the Olympics. Now, uh, we, we want to be careful here because there is a lot of discussion around what the Olympics does to a country or a city. A lot of people see it as something positive, but uh, a lot of times it, it brings a lot of financial burden to that country or that city. And although there's a way of 
winning the bid for hosting the Olympics. And a lot of people want to do that because there are, of course, benefits to it. Uh, it can be a huge burden. But just so you get an idea of what the economic impact was of the 2012 London Olympics, which was approximately 13.7 billion USD, so US dollars, or 9.9 billion pounds. That's the activity, the economic impact that occurred because of the Olympics. That's a lot of dollars moving back and forth. And that's what the Olympics is. It's this big, big platform, big event. And although right now, if you go to the Olympic website, it says uh, 40 sports. I think on average, there's 33 sports and there are 50 disciplines. So some sports have multiple disciplines. That's why there are more disciplines than sports. But that's what you're looking at. And I just wanted to give you the top 10 uh, sports that have been there kind of traditionally, at least in the last 10 Olympics. And the number one is uh, track and field is number one. Number two, swimming. Number three, gymnastics. Number four, soccer or football. Number five, basketball. Six, volleyball. Seven, tennis. Eight, boxing. Nine, wrestling. And 10, weightlifting. And um, in 2020 and slash 2021 Tokyo, uh, they added surfing, skateboarding, uh, sports climbing, karate or karate, and uh, they brought back baseball and softball. And now for 2024, they're bringing back, they're not bringing back, they're including uh, breaking. So um, that's what you got when it comes to the Olympic platform from an economic perspective, from a visual perspective, and how it influences an economy and what sports are most viewed. Now, my sense is that breaking can fall within the top 10 most viewed uh, disciplines or sports within the Olympics. So it's a, it's a big deal. Now, uh, let's just quickly go uh, with a little aside here on breaking. I understand that a lot of people in breaking are concerned that this could potentially water things down, um, be detrimental to the origin and foundation of breaking. At the same time, what I what I am encouraged by, and I and I see the the sentiment. What I am encouraged by is that every single person, at least that I have spoken to within the breaking scene that is on this path, is listening to those concerns, is including those in their thinking and expression, and realize that uh, more than representing themselves and their country at the Olympics, they are really representing breaking. And one of their goals is to make breaking and the extended community proud. And although there's a new discipline of breaking that is emerging from this, which is inevitable, this is the nature of, of nature, basically, it's that it's going to evolve, is that breaking is evolving into a slightly new expression, and you can call it Olympic breaking. But fear not, because just because uh, breaking may be expressed in a slightly new way, it doesn't have to take away from what got it to this point. And it can, it can only add, but it requires a level of communication, understanding of uh, the path and the arc of growth that breaking is currently going through for that to, yeah, remain um, uh, with some integrity and values that are of service to not only uh, breaking as a sport, but breaking as an art 
and one that respects the tra traditions and allows those traditions to be amplified and uh, voiced uh, throughout this process. So I just want to make that aside because I understand that this uh, is a sensitive topic. Now, let, let's try to understand what the Olympics is trying to do. I'm, I'm just going to read this because this is the Olympics, uh, Olympic Games mission. And I'm going to read it because I, I don't know it by heart, but I, I, and I want to get it right. Basically, the Olympics is an event with a mission to unite the world in peaceful competition to promote sportsmanship and fair play and celebrate the athletic achievements of individuals from all nations. The Olympic Games outlines that the fundamental principles and values of the Olympic movement is that one wants to contribute to building not only a peaceful, but also a better world through education of the youth, through sports, and by following the uh, values and philosophy of Olympism. And Olympism being a philosophy that blends sports with culture and education and promotes the values of excellence, respect, friendship, and this being amongst all nations. And um, this is this is powerful stuff. I mean, it's a it's a good mission. Now, l let's be uh, realistic here about what this is as well. It's not only a philosophy and uh, a platform dedicated to spreading the values uh, of the Olympics. But it's also uh, a business, and it's important to know how the Olympic business works. So I wanted to divide the Olympic machine into three parts. One, broadcasting. Two, sponsorships. And three, ticket sales. Those are kind of the main revenue streams when it comes to the Olympic machine. And uh, just so you get an idea, some of the stats say that broadcasting rights typically, typically comprise 50 to 70% of the Olympic revenue with 56% for the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio. That means that over half of the revenue generated is through broadcasting. This means that the Olympics is first and foremost a show, specifically a show that is presented through media. Now, it can be uh, streaming or whatever it may be, but it's, it's a media show, media-based show. Now, the second aspect here is sponsorship. And the sponsorship is the second largest revenue source and accounts to 20 to 30% of the total revenue, 25% of that being uh, uh, what we saw at the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio. That means that a quarter, one-fourth of the revenue generated at the Olympics comes from sponsors. And we're going to get into Rule 40 and what that means. Rule 40 is uh, really quickly is is a rule that states that the participants in the Olympics cannot um, uh, endorse their own individual sponsors. They must fall under the Olympic sponsorship and the uh, sponsorship that the teams have specifically. We'll get into it a little bit in a second, but it's important to know that the machine of the Olympics is based on broadcasting rights, sponsorship, a quarter of that, and then finally, ticket sales. And ticket sales comprise or contribute to 10 to 20% of the total revenue. 14% of that uh, was what we saw in 2016, so in Rio. That means that uh, a tenth, a tenth of the revenue stream is ticket sales. 
And if you think about it like that, that may be uh, shocking for you to hear as um, if you are in the breaking scene and you've hosted some events, uh, a lot of uh, the um, revenue that you're generating, uh, you're looking to cover it through ticket sales, but you also have to have some sponsors and then you bring in vendors, et cetera. So you, you kind of have an idea, but the fact that the Olympics uh, and the, the, the revenue that it generates uh, only 10 to 20% comes from ticket sales, uh, to me is is eye-opening because it really showcases that the Olympic machine is based on the show that is to be distributed worldwide and supported by the sponsors uh, that are investing in making sure that that happens and thus heavily influenced by the sponsors themselves. And this is something that I think every breaker should know. Now, um, why should you, the breaker, care about this? Well, because if this is a show, this is a movie, you, the athlete, you, the breaker, who are trying to qualify for the Olympics, you are a character that plays a role in the Olympics. And the truth is that if there are no athletes, there is no Olympics. If there is no character, there is no Olympics. You are the show. The problem is that the leverage that the Olympics has on you, the individual athlete, especially an athlete that is part of a sport now, like breaking, coming into the Olympics for the first time, is your leverage is almost insignificant. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be willing to participate in this because the magnitude of this, regardless of the leverage that you have to contribute to yourself, to breaking, is, is is greater than what you possibly can see at this moment, especially if you're willing to look at what the platform is, does, and how it operates. So uh, that being said, what is it that makes people want to compete in the Olympics? Uh, the Olympics itself says it's the opportunity to represent your country and to compete at the highest level of your sport and to prove yourself as the best of the best. This is that that that's the nature of competition, that's the nature of sportsmanship and that's what you get to experience at the Olympics. But I believe that there is so much more and we want to be a little cautious here about how we think about this because as amazing as the Olympics can be, it can also break you. And this is not a pun, this is uh, literal breaking. It can break you mentally and emotionally and financially. And uh, just some stats. Uh, these are not official stats, but it's um, polling from different sources. Approximately 90% of the people that uh, participate in the Olympics end up with financially uh, nothing. They end up basically broke. Uh, now they have to get jobs and do other things, but they don't live off of the Olympics. Uh, post-competition, what happens is that they have the biggest come down of all time and they enter into post-competition depression. All of a sudden, their identity is lost. They have dedicated their whole life to trying to qualify for the Olympics. They put everything on hold to make this happen. And then they go to the Olympics. It's just another jam. It's just another event. It goes by like this. And then the come down comes. All of a sudden, there's nothing uh, there that holds, supports, uh, creates, or influences your momentum and drive. Or at least uh, you can't remember at the core what influences your drive. 
and then the the sad part is that um if you don't make it on the podium and i would even uh argue that if you don't make it to the top of the podium your name will quickly be forgotten it it, it just becomes this faint distant echo in time and that's the harsh truth it's it's a lot so how how do you how do you navigate this how do you how do you uh work through this well before we we get into that i'm going to i'm just going to share what the rule 40 is i'm just going to read it here and then I want to just share some of the earnings that some Olympians experience. Uh, and when I say some, I mean some, a few. So the Rule 40 says that um, uh, the Olympics prohibits athletes from using their image or likeness to promote any non-Olympic sponsors during the Games period. It typically begins nine days before the opening ceremony and ends three days after the closing ceremony. Athletes cannot display their personal sponsors, branding on any Olympic-related item or activity during this period, such as um, on their clothing, equipment, or in the Olympic Village. The rule aims to protect the interests of official Olympic sponsors who have paid significant amounts. We now know how much it costs to get in there um, because we know how much sponsors are paying and we know the cost uh, of producing the Olympics. Uh, anyways, they paid significant amounts of exclusive rights to use the Olympic branding and imagery in their promotional campaigns. That's rule 40. That means that if you have uh, individual sponsors, you can't display those. You can't talk about those. You can't do anything with them. You're going to be um, a product of your country's team, and uh, you're going to be um, associated with the sponsors that are supporting the Olympics. Now, this is not a good nor bad thing. It just is a rule and it is what it is. That doesn't mean you can't work with this. Uh, and I think this is really, really important. We're going to get into it in a second. Now, here's the deal. When you go to the Olympics, there are no guarantees you will be successful uh, just from participating. And it's because uh, most Olympic athletes, unless you end up on the podium, you, you just don't make any money. But there is some money if you get uh, on the podium. And I'm going to give you a few examples. Check this out. The United States of America. If you're American from the U.S., if um, you placed, so this is from Tokyo 2020. If you place first, take a gold, you get $37,500 for each gold medal. You get $22,500 for a silver medal. You get $15,000 for a bronze medal. Okay, you may be thinking, okay, that's uh, some money. But if you look at the extent of the work that you put in to get there, and then all of a sudden you're at the at the top with a gold medal and you have 37500 and uh, you divide that by four, uh, that doesn't even cover uh, half of your rent. That doesn't cover uh, your mortgage. Uh, you can't pay your bills on that, okay? It's very little. Now, uh, there are other countries, Singapore, small, one of the smallest countries in the world. <clears throat> Check this out. Uh, in 2020, Tokyo Olympics, uh, first place, a gold medal, uh, earned um, the athlete 737000 Okay, this is three quarters of a million. That's for gold. For silver, half a million dollars. This is U.S. dollars. And uh, sorry, uh, 368,000 US dollars. It's 500,000 Singapore dollars. 
and uh, for bronze, 184,000 US dollars. So that's a significant multiplier if you if you compare it to the US, uh, sig significantly more. In uh, in Great Britain, uh, they're a little bit closer to the US. You would get 51,000 US dollars uh, for um, for gold. Um, so that's that's kind of what you're looking at. Then you have countries like Kenya and Africa. Uh, you receive you receive zero dollars. Maybe you receive some incentives from your um, personal sponsors or maybe the uh, national governing body uh, after the Olympics, but other than that, um, nothing. Now here comes China. China comes in hot with seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars for a gold. Uh, four hundred sixty-five thousand dollars for um a silver and three hundred ten thousand dollars for a bronze. Now, um, that's what you get if you're at the top. Fourth, fifth, sixth position may get some, but most likely nothing. Uh, moreover, and this is the tragedy of this is that you're off the podium, you are completely forgotten, unless, unless you have a solid personal brand and we're going to talk about what this is in a second now when i first started uh working with the breakers who are in the u.s looking to qualify for the olympics i told everybody the following which is that not everybody's going to make it but every single one of them can be successful and it's up to them to make that happen and the question is, how do we do that? Well, it's uh, it's something that requires an individualized approach. Everybody has to be successful in a different way. And today, I just wanted to share a few ideas around what that may look like, at least give a little structure, and then potentially, if anybody actually listens to this and, and, and thinks this is interesting, to maybe um, answer some questions that you may have in future episodes. So, uh, remember that the first thing that I learned when talking to the breakers interested in going to the Olympics is that they wanted to go pro. Going pro meaning that uh, they could financially support themselves through their breaking practice and to do this um, for a lifetime. And to, uh, although uh, having an expiration date in their physical performance, knowing that their performance can carry on by building something uh, like a business that could carry them within the breaking space to the end of their days. Now, how, how do you do that? Well, there are three things that you can do to go pro. And the first thing, this, and these are just my opinions, my approach, the work that I'm doing. I found some success in it. I have some proof of concept. I can get into a bunch of details. But uh, do your own research, uh, and and please don't let a fool like me just tell you what to do. This is this is key, actually, is that uh, in order for you to be successful as a solopreneur, as an athlete, trying to uh, leverage a platform like the Olympics to not only express yourself at the highest level, but to build something that is long-lasting, you need to become the leader. You need to become autonomous. You need to be the one that helps people like myself who are interested in helping you to guide and mentor uh, a person like myself to be able to help you make better decisions. 
that's the key. And I guess that's something that uh, we can get into a little bit more as well. But this is how you do it. The first thing you do is you create and share a lifestyle and this lifestyle becoming your personal brand. Now, how do you do this? Well, you just do what you do. You continue to break the way that you do it. It's through practice, competition, uh, going out, dancing for fun, listening to music, uh, DJing, emceeing, whatever it may be. You just continue to develop this lifestyle. And the way to amplify this lifestyle and make it a personal brand is through documenting what you're doing. This can be through a podcast like I have right now, uh, sharing on different social media channels, um, writing blogs, uh, writing uh, newsletters, uh, creating a YouTube channel. I mean, there's endless possibilities. <laughs> you can even do it in an analog form. You can do it in person. You can host events. It's completely up to you. And here's the, the, the big uh, takeaway on this is that in the beginning, for every single one of the athletes within the breaking space who are interested in developing a lifestyle, a business, and a personal brand, is you need to allow breaking to carry you. Allow yourself to be fully influenced by breaking until you get to a point where you have found your own unique voice within breaking so that you can now give back to breaking and influence breaking itself. This is key. And as you can imagine, this takes time. Thus, uh, the time to start developing your business is right now. This is what I call the infinite practice. It's a never-ending thing. Uh, you start now and you go forever. And the Olympics just happens to be a blip on the radar. Now, the second thing you do in developing your business is as breaking elevates you, you have to learn the business of breaking. And, and you can look at the business of breaking just by looking at the landscape and seeing there are events, there are battles, celebrations, anniversaries. You can do some teaching or coaching, workshops. Uh, there's entertainment, meaning industry work. You have brand partnerships and collaborations. And then you have other. Other is you creating your own lane, uh, having merch or something like that, that kind of uh, fits the uh, breaking community and is something that is of value. When you get to this point where you understand the landscape of the breaking market, that's when you can now start to develop your own business. And what is the business going to be based on? Well, first, it's going to be based on products and services that are an extension of your lifestyle and that amplify not only your lifestyle, but breaking itself and potentially beyond. So this is when one becomes a solopreneur. One becomes a business of one. And the scaling of that, the growing of that, is something that happens over time when you start to get organized and you have things in uh, a structure that allows the machine to evolve and grow. And we can get into what the components of those are in a second. But before we get into that, my suggestion is that every single one of you, now I'm talking to the solopreneur, breaker, within the scene, trying to go pro, that every single one of you develops a clear understanding of what your mission is and what your purpose is. Now, this is uh, important not for anybody else but you. And the reason is because when you have a clear purpose, 
you have a reason for doing things. When you have a clear mission, you have a clear task. And now every decision you make, if you stay on task, if you stay on mission, you stay on your purpose, meaning on brand, everything starts to make sense. And you start to find direction that will get you where you want to go. Um, and the beauty of it is that it accelerates over time. Now, I know I'm moving fast. This is something that you're going to have to potentially listen to several times, but um, I want to make sure that you get all this information. So how do you arrive at your purpose? Well, some of you may intuitively just know what your purpose is. I've seen uh, mothers within the scene who care about the nurturing of their kids. That may be your purpose. Uh, there are people in the scene who care about carrying the legacy of breaking. That may be your purpose. There are uh, people in the scene who um, want to educate about breaking outside of breaking. That may be your purpose. One of the things that I've been saying, and this is just like a little KPI, key performance indicator in my head, is that if breaking continues to evolve the way that it's evolving, we're going to get to the point where parents around the world are saying the same way they say, um, uh, I'm going to put my kid into football or soccer or gymnastics. They're going to say, I'm going to put my kid into breaking. The moment people start saying, I'm going to put my kid into breaking, a big inflection point will have occurred within the scene. And this uh, will be a special moment as I think the the market will have uh, expanded. So your, your purpose may something, be something that you intuitively know. Now, if you want to be a little bit more deliberate about exploring this, you can use Ikigai, the Japanese art of purpose. Uh, maybe you've heard about this just by scrolling through TikTok, but it's very simple and it's actually very effective. And you ask yourself four questions. What do I love? What am I good at? What do I do in exchange for value? And what does the world need more of? And if you can't answer the uh, question of what do you think the world needs more of, ask yourself, what do you need more of? The moment you know what you love, what you're good at, what you do in exchange for value, and what the world needs more of or what you need more of, you'll realize that there's overlap amongst the four. And you'll see that the stuff that you love and the stuff that you're good at, that shapes your passion. Your passion is your fuel, the fire, the thing that drives you. The uh, overlap between that which you're good at and that which you do in exchange for value is usually where your profession lies. So if you're a breaker, you may notice that what you're good at is competing and what you do in exchange for value, meaning when you show up at competitions, you win and be you showing up at competitions because you have a bigger name attracts more people, that becomes your profession. That's your career path, so to speak, from a mechanical perspective. Then you may notice that there's an overlap between that which you do in exchange for value and that which you know or believe the world needs more of, and that becomes your vocation. And there's a difference between your profession and your vocation. Your profession is the mechanical exchange. It's, the, it's just the movement itself. It's you show up at a competition and you exchange the value there. The vocation is the contribution that you um, give through the mechanical expression of your craft. So you may show up at an event, win that event, but your contribution to breaking is a helping get the need met that is unmet at this moment, the thing that you believe they need more of. And when you give them that, the, the ripple effect of you winning goes beyond the victory itself. It actually influences, inspires, encourages, evolves the craft in a meaningful way. That's your vocation. When you have your passion, your profession, your vocation, 
Now you have three legs of a tripod. And what do you put on top? Well, on top you place your mission. And your mission happens to be the overlap between that which you love and that which you believe the world needs more of. And when you start to realize that that which you love and that which you, um, you believe the world needs more of, now you can start to crystallize this mission and become very clear in this mission for you to have very specific direction or a very specific direction. And how do you get to your mission with more clarity? Well, you can answer five questions. And the questions are the following. It's who are you? It can just be your name. What do you do? I break. Um, who do you do it for? You can say for yourself, but try to add the people that you influence, inspire, the people that you believe in, the people that you care about. What do those people that you break for need? What is missing? What do you see there? And then finally, when they get their needs met, what impact are you making? How are you pushing things forward? How are you expanding things? When you become clear in who you are, what you do, what the who the people you serve are, what they need, and the impact that you make, now you can have a very clear mission. And when you can articulate this mission, people can start to see you. And when people start to see you, people start to understand you. And when people start to understand you, now they start to uh, mimic, mirror, uh, they want to work with you. Uh, and in addition to mobilizing people, what you're really doing is you're becoming acutely aware of your moral compass, your guiding principles, and the, the core values that are displayed through your craft. And this is what uh, it becomes marketing talk for you become authentic. In other words, you become one of the real ones. You, you are true to yourself, your beliefs, and uh, it's, it's showcased as a standard through and through. And this is integrity. This is the level of integrity that um, the breaking community, in my opinion, needs more than ever at this point. And it's hard because there's so much noise. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody is out to get something. There's a lot of egos. And I know because mine is included now in this. I'm heavily invested. But we have to get out of our way. We have to get out of the way of our egos our egocentric way of thinking and start to think beyond that. And that lives in one's purpose and one's mission. And when one can do that, uh, one can uh, set out to do the thing that they set out to do. And whether they are successful in terms of accomplishing the task the way that they had envisioned or not, they can still be successful. And, and what does success look like? Well, success is creating succession, a progression. A passing of the torch. This is just a little analogy for what the Olympics is. This is a little analogy for something that I learned from the Renegade uh, Rockers uh, crew in San Francisco. I learned that it was about carrying on tradition. Carrying on tradition is key for breaking to continue to live and grow and um, uh, stay rooted in its origins. And this requires something very important. It requires you to become a leader. So if you're going to be representing breaking your country, yourself, at uh, the biggest level of sport, this platform, or any other platform, it doesn't really matter. Like the Olympics is just a lane. It's a big lane, but it's a lane. You, you got to become a leader. Now, the definition of leadership that I like the most comes from a man called Ron Heifetz. 
And Ron Heifetz defines, I'm paraphrasing now, he defines leadership as the mobilization of people to overcome obstacles and come out on the other side triumphant, winning. What does this mean? This means that as a leader, when you become clear on your purpose and mission and you display it with integrity through your craft, you start to move people. And specifically, you start to move people through that which they feel is resistance, hard to get through. This may be financial hardship. This may be self-worth. This may be a lack of representation within the breaking community and looking for inclusivity. This can be any of those obstacles. Only you know which ones matter to you. So mobilize people to overcome those obstacles and then define what it means to be triumphant, what it means to win. If you can do that, you will be successful and you will be a leader. And thus, uh, it doesn't matter if you make it to the Olympics or win it or not, because uh, success is something that is determined by you and not by somebody else. So that's my uh, encouragement to everybody listening, especially if you are in the breaking scene. Now, um, what's going to happen over time if you continue to nurture that which you love, that what you're good at, that what you do in exchange for value, that what you believe the world needs more of, you have a clear understanding of what your mission is, you have a clear purpose, eventually you become an SME, a subject matter expert. And a subject matter expert is a person who knows a lot about a certain subject and has a very unique perspective. And that unique perspective is the perspective of one. And that unique perspective has infinite leverage, infinite opportunity when uh, that expertise can be deployed in context, meaning in a specific situation, uh, because it's needed as a skill set, as something that um, is required to add value or to move the needle. Now, this uh, is very idealistic. It's an idealistic thought, but it's, it's actually a progression. It's not a destination. It's a path that you're walking. And this is what you could call mastery. This is the infinite progression this is the infinite state of adaptation. This is this idea that you as a breaking athlete, you may have an expiration date as an athlete yourself, but your creativity, which is the artistry of your craft, does not. And if you build a vehicle and you become a leader within this space, your creativity can carry your performance just in different forms for the rest of your life and be something that continues to add value to you, your family, your community, and breaking itself. I believe that this is is true, and I, I I live every day trying to instill this in myself and those people I work with. And this, although kind of philosophical at the moment, uh, translates into tactical, strategic uh, ways of deploying uh, oneself, one's craft, one's skills to produce the results that you're seeking to produce. So. What does an athlete or what should an athlete do that's looking to qualify for the Olympics? Well, you have to become a business. Uh, you have to think about the lifestyle. Uh, you have to think about your personal brand. You have to start sharing that. You have to, as I said earlier, you have to understand the market that you're in. And then you have to create your own lane. And within that lane, become a leader, become a reference. And um, in terms of the mechanics of the business... Uh, a, a business, and, and this is a very rudimentary, simplified version of what a business can be, but a business has six parts. It has a product or a service. At first, as an athlete, you are the product and the service. It has a legal structure. A legal structure is basically just an entity, and you can have a, your entity can be your own 
personal identity within a country, or it can be um, an incorporation. It can be an LLC, a limited liability company. A limited liability company in the United States um, is simply a, a, a giving birth to an entity that you own, but that is not you and that you operate under. This is a way of protecting yourself. In the U.S. especially, uh, protecting yourself is a huge thing because everybody <laughs> wants to sue you or mess with you. Uh, so that's that's a story. So that's part of the, uh, creating a business. Then you not, need to have a business plan. Now, a business plan is not like having this um, amazingly detailed uh, structured document. This is a living document. And it starts with your mission and your purpose. That's your business plan. What's your purpose? What's your mission? Figure that out. Talk about it. And the beauty of this is that it doesn't even have to be something that is clear in action or in execution. It can uh, simply be clear in feeling, in a sentiment. What do you want to feel? Talking the other day to one of the breakers who is on Team USA and uh, wants to win the Olympics, I asked him, what will it feel like to win the Olympics? And he said, it will feel glorious. And I said to him, well, make every single moment of this path glorious. Figure out how to reframe every moment so that you can be in that state of achievement, of destiny, so to speak, right now. If you can do that, then regardless of outcome, your Olympic experience will be glorious. Thus, you will be triumphant. So that's a business plan. That's the business plan. You can say, I want to be the best, but the plan is to feel something. Start with a feeling. Allow that to influence your thinking. Allow your thinking to influence your emotions, which is the physiological embodiment of a, a feeling, and then allow that to express yourself, uh, to mechanically move you through space. And this influences your craft, your practice, your training, the whole shebang. So that's your business plan. Now, a marketing strategy. What is this? A marketing strategy is simply bringing something to market. The market is the breaking industry. It's the breaking market. It's the dance market. It's the athletics market. It's the fitness market. It's the art market. Bring yourself to market. How do you do this? Well, you need exposure. You need to communicate. You need to collaborate. At least start to think about it that way. And the way that you do this is by creating something, becoming somebody that can plug in and be plugged into meaning you can collaborate with other companies, with other people, and those people can collaborate with you. You need to be able to create win-win situations. And bringing that to market is displaying, demonstrating the value that you offer. And at first, the value is going to be a sentiment. If you can evoke the feeling, you can create the plug-in. That's your marketing uh, 101. And then from there, you can start to become tactical and strategic. And it's something that we can uh, get into, and this goes into advertising or whatever it may be. Then you need financial management. What are you going to do with 100 bucks? What are you going to do with 1000 bucks? Here's the deal. If you can't manage 100 bucks and make those work for you, you have no business having 1000 You have no business having 10000 In fact, a lot of the contracts that I'm seeing right now, the initial offer is not in benefit of you. And although there are several zeros that seem appealing, the, the exchange of that value doesn't equate to uh, the value of the athlete. Thus, you need to become really um, uh, disciplined and well-versed in how you look at money, how you look at the numbers. What can this money do for me? In fact, I'd like to play this game where I think about money as my best friend. If it's my best friend, I can't exploit it. I can't just like throw it away. I'm not going to throw my friend away. 
I'm, I'm going to ask it for permission. And this is just a fun little mental game that I play. I'm going to ask it for permission if it's willing to do some work for me. And then I have to be willing to uh, sacrifice certain parts of that which I want to cover that which I need in order to one day get to where I want to be. And, and this is key for finances. And uh, I've, had, I've had the pleasure of working with a financial advisor. His name is Justin Castelli. I've had him here on the podcast before. You can go listen to him, Money Moves. He's also spoken to some of the breakers that I work with. And um, yeah, in order to express yourself creatively at the highest level to pursue your career as an athlete, uh, financial management is key. And I can tell you that uh, I have messed up with my finances a lot in the past. But uh, no more. Now uh, finances are my friend. Money is my friend. And it helps me amplify the message. And it's, um, it's the best. It's the best. Uh, so uh, take care of your, your finances. Build some financial literacy. And then finally, you have to have a team. One of the things that I'm uh, encouraging every breaker is to build their own team. Have your own board of directors. Have your advisors. Have your core group of people that you go to and that are uh, in support of you and are also going to hold you accountable to your mission, to your purpose, and to your standards. And that if you ever deviate from that, they can stop you and say, remember where you came from so that you know where you want to go. And, and this is key. So having a product and a service, it could be you. Eventually, you'll develop more. Uh, a legal structure, a business plan, a business plan, marketing strategy, financial management, and employees slash team. That's key. So this is how you leverage the Olympics. Now, what do you do with the Olympics specifically? Let's say you you now qualify for the Olympics. If you are a business, what you do is, according to the rule uh, 40, uh, you uh, know that nine days before opening ceremony, you just go quiet. This becomes the inflection. Now you start to go into an inflection point. You go through the Olympics, three days past the closing ceremony, boom, you hit the launch button. And that's when you say, I am launching uh, this new product, this new service. I'm doing this new thing. And now you're carrying the energy, the momentum of your Olympic competition, and you're allowing that to fuel and to be channeled through the vehicle that you've created, which is your personal business. And when you do this, I believe that you can be extremely successful. And that business doesn't have to be a product of a, or a service that is not you. It can be you continuing to be who you are going down the path of competing at the highest level, but now with higher a higher pedigree, a higher degree of integrity, a higher degree of understanding, um, and just a place where you feel more aligned and co in coherence with your craft, the evolution of it, and who you are becoming as a leader within your space. So this, my friends, this is this is Olympic breaking. This is a message that uh, I hope brought some clarity, uh, made you think a little bit, allowed you to maybe reflect on what you're currently doing and how you're thinking about doing it in the future. And... Um, I'm very curious to hear if this added some value. So in, in the uh, podcast here, uh, one of the things that you can do, especially on Spotify, you can see that I'll, I'll leave a question. Uh, you can ask questions there, and then I can answer those questions in the future. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at Carl Powley or on Twitter um, or any social media platform for that matter. And uh, feel free to um, 
yeah, comment or ask questions. And, and keep in mind, I'm not a breaker, but I love breaking. And one of my goals is to see people like myself, more people like myself who have been heavily influenced by you, uh, to continue to support you and encourage you and to uh, facilitate the path of growth that you're on without taking away from that which has gotten you this far. And if we can do that, then I think, yeah, breaking in the Olympics or not is going to be a success. So thank you for listening. Much love. I hope this was worth your time. And yeah, I'll see you on the next one. Peace, everybody. This is the Freestyle Way.